Merry Christmas, everyone, and welcome to the Drury Outdoors 100% Wild Podcast. I'm Tim Chelswick. That's Matt Drury. What's up? What's up? I'm excited for the holidays. I, I, I guess so, because it's today, as we're filming, this is December 4th. <laughs> it's, it's snowing outside, so yeah. it feels like Christmas. Yeah. My wife starts watching Christmas movies and listening to Christmas music in early November. I was going to say, that was a month ago, I man. can't do that. I'm Christmased out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't maintain that, that level of excitement for the holidays that long, so I have to wait. But then when it's on, it's well, on. What killed us was that the snow we got mid-November here that in was Missouri. Weird. Like, and it was a lot of yeah. snow. Yeah, you know, like six inches, inches, six eight inches, yeah. depending on where you were. So, so that like kicked it into hyperdrive, and ever the hysteria went mm. nuts. You know, people in my neighborhood, their Christmas lights were on. It's like, all right, you know, this is a le- we got to get past Thanksgiving. <laughs> Please, first. yeah, yeah. That that's kind of my rule. I have to at least get past Thanksgiving. I would prefer like the first week in December, then start getting into the Christmas spirit and the Christmas movies and all that kind of good stuff. So. So, so my favorite Christmas movie, yeah, and we'll get we'll get it from our, our guest a little bit later on. My favorite Christmas movie is The Christmas Story, the Red Ryder BB Gun, Ralphie, F- F- Schwartz, like yeah. the whole crew. That is, it's not Christmas until I watch that. I can definitely relate. It's not my favorite movie. I can definitely definitely relate to it though, because mm-hmm. when I was a little kid. Apparently that is what I wanted one year for a Red Rider oh, yeah. BB gun, and I don't know six or six or seven years old. Mm-hmm. And we actually got videotape of, of this of me getting and opening no my Red Rider BB awesome. gun. And it's it's something in, in our home that's they've made fun of me for a long time because of the way I react <laughs> when I oh I Red Rider BB yes. gun, you know, and they make fun of me. <laughs> every shoot some Christmas. bad guys, yeah. So, uh, but I still have that gun actually. Really? Yeah, I still have it. It's under my bed. Believe it or not, I I got one also. I didn't get it for Christmas, um, but I got like one of the old school ones. It actually had the compass in the stock, and it had a sundial on it that nice. snapped off at some point. Yeah. I, in this, you know, I look forward to giving it to my son at some yeah. point. Mm-hmm. But we actually were partnered up with with Daisy for a while. This sure. has been years ago, and during that time, they sent us a, a few. And I have one in a box. I've kept it in my garage oh, for cool. in a box, waiting yeah. for the time where Cameron is old enough, you know, in a few years here to give him his own. It's Red a rite of passage. Yeah, that's right. So I'm I'm excited about that. But it's we're still a couple couple years away. But we were just at a little. Uh, birthday party this past weekend and there the kids were it was out in the country and the mm-hmm. kids were all playing with toy guns and all which sudden, was normal for our childhood yeah exactly i mean i thought about it i had a ton of toy guns mm-hmm. and i thought about them like you know we have a maybe one or two at the house but nothing really that looks real or anything like that sure he wants one for christmas now and so this morning i asked him we're gonna go over to bass pro and go to their winter wonderland Mm -hmm. and and ask santa you know tell him what we want for christmas all that stuff and i i asked him he won't sit on his lap i said hey so you gotta actually sit on his lap if you want to tell him what you want for christmas he's like no he goes i he goes i think if i was in the store and i touched the gun that he would know I want that gun. <laughs> and I was like, man, I don't think that's how it. I don't think that's how it works, buddy. So, so we're going over to Bass Pro tomorrow. It should be comical. <laughs> Can't wait to see it. Yeah, well, well, I'm sure we'll film it. So, well, okay, so so Christmas vacation is your go-to. Yeah, absolutely. Christmas vacation. Dad loves it. We love it. I mean, it, it that one 
we will gather the entire family every year and watch that movie. I mean, that is hands down our favorite Christmas movie. I, I won't ask you if you have a cousin Eddie because everyone in their family <laughs> has a cousin Eddie. <laughs> Maybe on my wife's side. <laughs> there's, there's some swamp goat in there somewhere. Yeah, but they're, you know, you're just quoting those movie lines all year round, it seems like, but time Christmas comes around, you know, they really start flying. Yeah. Well, so. so we've got a special guest with us today, and we want to make sure that we get uh, get his Christmas favorite, uh, his favorite Christmas movie. Our guest today is Rod White, our probably our first Olympian that we've uh, ever had on I, the show. I'd say I'd say first Olympian, probably the most esteemed guest. Is that right, Rod? Are you esteemed? I don't know about esteemed. <laughs> we'll go with it. So, so Rod and I met. Oh, it's probably been five or six years ago. My buddy was uh, was. We have a, a mutual friend, Daryl Steenan, who runs Select Archery in name. Normal, Illinois. Throwing on name. Drop a name. <laughs> Everyone knows Daryl. Um, uh, but so so um, I was I was helping with this hundred yard archery competition, and Rod steps out there and uncases his bow and is shooting a hundred yards like I shoot twenty. And I was like, this, bad, this huh? is not, <laughs> leave Rod alone. <laughs> this is not fair. But yeah, Rod actually medaled in, was it the 97 Olympics? Uh, I mean, 96 and 2000 Olympics. Okay. So that's so a couple what's... more medals than you, right, Matt? <laughs> Just two. Okay. Yeah, not a big deal. You know, so what we've had Pete Shepley on the last couple of weeks, and now we're having Rod on. Like, we're doing pretty well for archery guests. That's yeah. And Levi Morgan. I can't out forget Levi. kicking our coverage. Yeah, we're out. We're, I mean, we really should be talking <laughs> to these guys. Right. <laughs> I've seen you shoot. <laughs> it's not so great. But, Rod, thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Maybe introduce yourself a little more to the folks at home. We kind of what you're doing in the, in the, in the archery and the bow hunting industry. So um, my job right now with the National Field Arts Association is the bowing coordinator. So I'm working to grow some grassroots programs that will introduce people to hunting and really hopefully uh, extend into public land awareness more and um, maybe work with some other organizations through the NFA too. And then of course I shoot professionally and um, bow hunt. Sure. And one of the things that, a few of the things I appreciate about Rod, he's, he's so... Um, he's so generous with his knowledge and his skill. I know, I know you travel around, you teach people, um, and you do training and you also do bow tuning, like really high. If you think your bow is in tune, give it to Rod and he'll show you like, you could probably eke another 30% out of this thing. I could use that help. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, so Rod, you want to tell people a little bit, a a little bit about your, uh, how you, your bow tuning work and kind of what what that what that entails yeah um i don't do a, a ton of it now that i work with the national field arts association but i do a lot of um a lot of seasonal and i guess quarterly videos and um things like that for the national field archery association and then do some writing for them as well too that kind of walks people through the process because even though equipment's constantly changing and there's all kinds of new innovations coming out in products the reality of we're still dealing with a stick in the string mm-hmm. so the basic principles that revolve around that, whether there's one cam, two cams, cam and a half, or six cams, they all pretty much do the same thing. So in the schools, I basically teach a lot about how the aerodynamics work with the bow and um, the variations in different bows and how you just need to adapt a little bit, some things here and there to, to, to build really high quality, high end uh, hunting setups specifically. It, it was one of the things that you know you're talking to an expert when you kind of think you have a good grasp of a subject and then you talk to someone like Rod about bow tuning. You're like, 
I am in deep water here. Yeah. This this guy is far beyond where I am. But I mean, you, but but archery is your life, so that that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing it since I was probably twelve or thirteen. Well, since I could bow hunt in um, Pennsylvania, which you had to wait till you were twelve then. Um, but since then, I've been shooting a bow pretty much as my full-time job almost with the exception of when I got into farm management a lot um, for about eight, seven or eight years or so, somewhere in there. And I had a uh, um, real estate and land development company, did a lot of habitat improvement work projects and helped flip farms for guys and um, get them into uh, really taking a higher level um, when it comes to being able to hold mature deer. And then through a lot of those people I met, I started doing a few more bow classes again and just got started shooting again. And now it's pretty much I'm full time shooting and just uh, doing the NFA gig. Sweet. So let's let's backtrack a little bit and <clears throat> go back to the you know we kind of glossed over the Olympic part of this story. Not a, not a big deal. <laughs> so give give us a little bit of a rundown of some of that that history leading into the Olympics, or your first Olympics, and you know maybe the most interesting story that happened to you on your path to the Olympics and, and to meddling. Um. So it's it's. Well, it's easier for me to talk about deer, <laughs> probably. <laughs> it's just because um, it, it, and the reason is because it wasn't going to the Olympic Games wasn't like a hard and fast like that's a, this is what I want to do. I just want to go to the Olympic Games and win a gold medal. That was never part of my program. I just wanted to hunt, and then oh by the way, you could do this too. Oh, um, and got involved in target archery. I went to a local club when I was about twelve or, or so um, because I went out and missed a few deer with my dad or with my brother. And uh, my dad basically said, you know, you've got to go learn how to shoot right. So I went to this club, and all they had were these recurve um, bows, single-string stick bows. And uh, I walked in, and I was kind of disappointed because I was ready to shoot animal targets. That's all I really cared about. And um, the, the folks that were there believed that you had to learn how to shoot with your fingers first and a recurve before you could really shoot with a compound. So they kind of almost at the time, people almost in target archery would push, push you away from shooting a compound unless you were shooting 3D archery. And that was kind of backyard billy bob type redneck things and in the area i was in that's what people looked at it as but that was where my love was um but i signed up for it i had to stick with it so i stayed and shot through that um that first year where we had this this, i was like it was called joe at june with archery development and we had shot at 20 yards and shot these olympic style faces you know the yellow center red blue block outside and um i shot i don't know pretty good with the other kids and Long story short, I went to a national competition, and I came in something like 44th out of 46 kids. <laughs> and that was the switch for me, for whatever reason, just super upset me. Um, and I decided I'm going to come back, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in the top 10 next year. That was my goal. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, I shot all year long, and I came back, and I think I wanted to place in, like, third or something like that. Um, and I thought, well, that's cool if I can do that. Or maybe it was eighth, and I thought, well, if I can place in top three next year, that'd be super cool. I came back and shot again, and... Um, I think I, I don't know if I won that year, maybe I got third, somewhere in there. And, um, we went to a, right after that, I was Tim Strickland, who was eventually wanted to be my play coach, was a junior team coach. And he'd come over and said, Hey, you know, we would like you to go to Italy or whatever. There was a, it was a form of a trial thing too, I think. And, um, we went to Italy to the junior world championships. We went to a, um, a world grand prix tournament it was called before that and started shooting with some adult i mean some of the best shooters in the world adults and i think i got second at the junior worlds that year got second at the junior worlds the next year and then pretty soon i started making um men's world teams and by the age of 
well, I guess it'd be 16 or so. Um, I, I, by 15, I made my first men's world team. And then um, was just traveling the, 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 the world, really, everywhere from Italy to Indonesia, shooting all over the place and hunting in here and there where I can. And then um, eventually won a gold medal in 96 in the team round and immediately started guiding out west and uh, started killing elk and chasing all those critters and got back to moved to the Midwest immediately, chasing big whitetails and you know, kind of the rest is history. Hmm. How old were you in 96? 19. Wow. That's old. <laughs> and what, what, so what was the, you know, going through your mind because it's, you're, you know, you're pretty young. Yeah. At yeah. That you're, point. You're not, not fully. An adult. Now, obviously you had gone through some life experiences going on the road like that and kind of going all over the world. So I'm sure you were uh, probably a little more mature than, than, you know, your average 19 sure. year old. But I mean, that's gotta be a pretty crazy feeling. I'm sure a lot of butterflies there, you know, when you're going into that tournament. Yeah, um, like I said, it was different for me because it wasn't like a, it wasn't just like a life goal for me. It was just something I was just doing. Um, I got more of a kick out of. I mean, don't get me wrong. Walking in the Olympic Games was was awesome. Yeah. But uh, shooting in like the ESPN Great Outdoor Games, shooting in Buckmasters events, head to head competitions, um, and the Olympic competition actually at the time and still is was a head to head format too. But it was a do or die thing. You only shot depending on the round, eighteen or twelve arrows, and you either advanced or you didn't. And so um, that rush was something I was always always seeking, and I think that that rush I would find chasing whitetails or whatever it is that I was hunting was it, it in my head it's the exact same thing. The things that happen to you physiolog physiologically um, that happen to you under extreme stress of like buck fever or um, whether you're shooting in a tournament for the for an Olympic medal or for tens of thousands of dollars at Vegas, whatever the case may be, that the things that happen to you are things that we can measure, like your pupils dilate, your blood thins, there's more oxygen being delivered into your blood system. Um, there's an adrenaline rush that happens. There's, there's things that we can measure that change. And that those changes are what I, that excitement level is what I'm seeking like almost all the time. So whether it's, whether it's shooting competitions at the Olympic games or, or hunting deer, it's the same thing. And it's a lot of like what we talk about. And, um, Tim could tell you that uh, we talk about in, in, seminars at some of the archer shops here and there just to get people get their head around and that excitement is why we do it because we didn't do it i mean honestly most of us i don't think would even bow hunt because you would just be killing and um i know it's just a different feeling mm -hmm. the the thing that I, I i find funny about rod's story is that you've got like all these people who going to the olympics archer professional competitive archery is their life and rod's just kind of a bow hunter that happens into he's one of us yeah he he, <laughs> he is which you know most of those guys you were running with rod in the, on the olympics on the olympic circuit they're not really bow hunters right no in the olympics definitely not in fact i was one of the very few that would that bow hunted at all um there were i don't want to say anti-hunters but there were definitely border borderline people that would they look down on it, I would mm -hmm. say, would probably be the best way to say it. And then even now, like shooting 3D archery is a little bit different at the ASAs and the NFA shoots. Um, the majority of people are, come from a bowling background. Yeah. But a lot of the higher-end target shooters, um, especially in target-type environments, are not actually hunters. And I don't, I, don't, I don't know why there's a disconnect there, but I think it's um, a lot of it has to do just with how they're brought up in, in the areas they brought up. And we're, unfortunately we're losing, which is kind of part of my job now at the NFA is to find ways to engage more youth and, and not just youth, but even re-engage um, people who have walked away from the sport of bow hunting because we've lost so much of that. 
It's weird because <clears throat> that disconnect, it, it's, it, I mean, it's a real thing. Like they they have no interest a lot of times and you would think it would not be that far of a stretch to go from target archery over to bow hunting. And Pete Shepley talks about it all the time. He brought mm-hmm. it up in our podcast. If I recall, we have a podcast. Yeah, hmm. we're on it. Uh, that <laughs> he was saying that it, it if you can get them to start with stick and string of any kind, even recurve, whatever, it's not that big of a leap to get them to try hunting. Well, I think the issue is that may be the case if they had a mentor or if they had somewhere to hunt. Right. But yes. that, that is usually the problem. They have nowhere to go, mm-hmm. even though there's tons of public ground. But the, the I think the mentality is it's too daunting of a task and i can i, I mean it takes time i, I can't imagine i've had the privilege and, and the honor to be able to go hunt private land all this yeah. time with, with dad and whether it was the 23 acres behind our house when i was a kid or you know you had that security blanket of there should be nobody on here right uh so i i mean i can't imagine how much more difficult it can be to go to go public and, and to be a kid or a new hunter and to try to do it on your own. And Hey, say you got lucky, you shot a deer. Now, what do I do with it? You know, there's a lot to know. If you don't have someone, I think that's the beauty of the internet in a lot of ways is that you can Google that stuff and there are gutting videos. There's, you, you know what I mean? Shooting videos. There's, yep. there's a lot out there to, to help somebody learn how to become a better hunter. And I mean, for 30 years, that's kind of what Mark and Terry have been, mm-hmm in their own way, trying to, you know, give some of their information out to the public and right. say, here's how we do it, you yep. know, yep. right or wrong. Yep. So, so Rod, we, we need to loop you into, uh, to our first important question for you. And that is what is your favorite Christmas time movie? Grinch. The Grinch. <laughs> you didn't have to think about it. The Grinch <laughs> is still Christmas. So the, the debate is, is it the cartoon version or is it the Jim Carrey version? The Jim Carrey version. So are you know. like the Grinch? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I like that. <laughs> so I, I, I will I will make an admission. I have never watched any Grinch movie to completion. What? Not I have never watched like, any. The cartoon's like 30 minutes. <laughs> I know. I've, I've never, like, it, when I watched it as, like, I'd, I'd watch snippets of it as I, when I was a kid. Something about that animation and the colors, it just made me feel uneasy. I just couldn't mm-hmm. watch it. I know it's weird. I was gonna I, say something, but no. <laughs> I'm gonna keep it to myself. I, I, I can pretty much imagine. I, I fully recognize, like I'm like 90% American because I did not watch The Grinch, mm. not 100%. <laughs> so, all right. So should we dive into? Let's watch The Grinch movie right now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, we have copyright. Yeah, we probably couldn't buy that. Let's dive into the question of the day. How all about right. that? Let's do it. <laughs> all right. The question of the day is brought to you by. Bass Pro Shops in Cabela's. Your adventure starts here. Hey, guys. This is Dennis uh, from Michigan. Uh, currently, we're hunting on a 50-acre uh, farm um, in Jackson, Michigan. Uh, we have a spot where we can hunt over some standing sweet corn. Also, there's a spot uh, in a wooded area uh, that's in between the bedding and the sweet corn itself. Um, just wondering where you guys would prefer to hunt uh, this time of year um, in that situation. Yeah, thanks. Dennis is actually a Deercaster. He submitted that question uh, through Deercast, so nice. I appreciate I appreciate him doing that. He gets that. a gold star. He wins today. <laughs> Nothing. Nice job winning, <laughs> winning the podcast, Dennis. So it, it brings up a good question. I know, like after the rut, things change significantly with deer patterns and and timing and everything. So, Rod, how does that question hit you? Um. Well, 
just, I assume they've already been through their gun seasons there in Michigan. Um, and for me, anytime after the gun seasons have hit, I, I tend to not hunt at all in the mornings. And if anything, I'll do some glassing, some scouting. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, without looking at obviously an aerial and being able to understand it, but maybe there's a vantage point from somewhere where, and Michigan's probably flat, but uh, maybe there's a vantage point from somewhere where we can monitor with, with glasses rather than using uh, scouting cameras. I, I tend to put my cameras away almost, almost entirely um, with the exception of a couple reasons. Um, but for the most part, like it sounds like you're not, you're just stuck doing what everybody else is going to do. You hunt the food in the evening, um, make sure you have a, an easy way to get into and out of that food source without, if possible, without running those deer out of there or really, really be smart about when you're hunting that and make sure the conditions are right. The wind's right for you. And, um, you know, is the weather conditions and patterns good enough for you to go in there and expect to see whatever it is that you're looking to hunt there. But I'm super, in the late season, super protective of how I hunt, or protective isn't the right word. Um, very, very careful about how I enter and leave an area in the late season. And in this scenario, it sounds like if he's hunting a food source that maybe there isn't much else around there for food, mature bucks especially, if there are anywhere he's hunting at, he's going to have to be really, really careful about um, how he gets into and out of that field, in my opinion. And in the mornings, I wouldn't. Personally, I wouldn't risk it at all. If I were going to hunt in the mornings, I'd want to hunt on the backside of that bedding area completely. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I would I would avoid it all together. I usually just hunt as soon as this, those guns start going off or I feel like we've moved into, which is generally after after Thanksgiving here in the Midwest and probably a little earlier in the north, um, I, I move out of, out of um, hunting any type of morning activity whatsoever. So what time would you head to the stand? Um, oh, if I was hunting in the evening, yeah, obviously, um, I probably, man, I don't know right now it's getting dark around, I think what, five or six here. Mm-hmm. So I, I would probably be out there a good two hours in advance. Um, but again, my big thing would be like, can I get out of there without spooking everything? Or am I just gonna just roll the dice when the conditions are best? And if so, we really need to assess those conditions. And I mean, I haven't gotten all the way through the app. You talked told me about the app yesterday, and I got on there and looked it out. And there's there's probably a lot of things in there that could help a guy out and figure out um, when those conditions might actually be best to 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 tackle in a, a, a situation like that. Absolutely, I think the thing, the big thing here, <clears throat> you know, he, he's got a food source. He's got a good late season food source, grain. And I'd be shocked. I mean, I don't know how big this has is. You know, sweet corn patches there, yeah, but I'm surprised there's anything left by this. That's point pretty here, incredible, especially sweet, in Michigan. Sweet corn, I mean, they just <laughs> annihilate that stuff. And so, uh, if you if it's legal there and if you can do it, you know, I'd say I'd wait personally if it were me. And I'm doing this right now. I'm trying to time out what my next. I still got a bow tag for. I still got a gun tag, but I'm gonna. That's a whole other story. I'm gonna forego that one because sure. we, we were having a tough time over in Illinois. But I got a bow tag for another spot in Illinois, and I <clears throat> that I could potentially go to. And I want to time it out so I'm getting to where that moon's getting ready to wax full again. Mm-hmm. And right now we're the dark of the moon. I think it's today actually, today or tomorrow is the dark of the moon. And so tomorrow, tomorrow. so yeah. <clears throat> I I'm waiting until in general to Rod's point. The timing of everything gets back to where you know if the weather's good, you, super high pressure, mm-hmm. really cold, uh, the moon's you know starting to wax full. Those five days leading into the full moon, they're gonna be hitting that food source like it's gonna be deadly here. Yeah. Towards the, the you know mid to end of December, like I'm um, like 17, 18, 19, 20, somewhere in there, it's gonna get really good again. So I would hold out. 
I would wait unless you know in like Rod's point you can glass and you're seeing he's you know you got mm-hmm. him pattern he's out there daylight and hitting your food source otherwise I'd let it go a couple days before if it's legal in Michigan I don't know if it is but if it is legal I'd go in and brush hog uh, you know a few things of corn you know a few pass of the corn give yourself some 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 reason for them to really hone in on that food source and then as long as you got the right wind and, and weather conditions, I'd, I wouldn't be afraid to hunt it two or three times. I would get in early enough because late season, they will dominate. If one does out or two does and, and you get out there, you get out there and they're already on the field mm-hmm. and you domino them back. Good luck, dude, because yeah. they're, they're not coming back out until the end of the day, you know, the afternoon. So you got to get in there early enough. I mean, I wouldn't be afraid to get in there at two o'clock, two thirty, and you know, at least, and, and uh, you know, you might have an hour or not, two hours where you're mm-hmm. not seeing something, but you know, the last 30 minutes is usually where they're all going to suck into that food source, depending on how close you are to the bedding area. Yeah. So I don't know if it's me, I'm waiting until we get to that good period and, and give it a whirl. But I like Rod, I would not be hunting any mornings. I mean, we just don't at this time of sure. year. Uh, I mean, it'd have to be the exact right scenario to go in and, and hunt a morning. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned something in there too that's unbelievably deadly for us with all the farms that I manage was once you mow that corn, the next three to four days after that, holy smokes, that's yeah. like, I mean, that's if it's legal, and even if you think it's legal, you should probably call just to double check with a game warden. Yeah. But there was one other thing I thought about we were talking about too is when we approach January, I don't know if they can hunt into January there, but when we approach that time period where, where the, the days start getting longer again, I've had a tremendous amount of luck leaving bucks alone, um, mature bucks, leaving them alone and not hunting them at all until that that time period starts coming where those days get longer and longer. And, I mean, I could be crazy, but I think, like, they get caught a little bit earlier because that, that time is changing again. Because the days are getting longer, they're going out thinking it's 4.50, and it's actually really now 4.55 the next day, or however you want to say that, I guess. Looking but that, that extra little bit of time could be the difference especially if you're bow hunting um to kill a mature one all you need is an extra minute <laughs> there's yeah. so many times where you're sitting there and you know the legal shooting hours it's like all right i got five minutes left i got two minutes left i got one minute left it's like no there he is he's <laughs> at the edge of the you know I, so. I can't tell you how many times i've killed deer at the very last little inkling of of legal shooting light because it and, and that's the thing like the optimism that kind of keeps you in the stand even though it's usually brutally cold otherwise we would all leave about 20 minutes <laughs> right. before the sun goes yeah, down yeah which like, is like right, that's the time to be there i haven't seen anything i'm done with this <laughs> but Stupid. that is the time to be there mm-hmm. yep so yep. well and, and i rod i like the fact you brought up access to the stand, this is the time of year where deer start to herd up, and you got more eyeballs and more noses in the field there, and and you just you don't want to educate them to your to your location. Sure. We've got some more questions that were submitted uh, via DeerCast. Unless there's anything else you guys want to add to Dennis's. Well, in general, I I mean, I, you know, I I think we covered that okay, but in general, since we have Rod here, I wanted to ask more about late season late season archery hunting mm-hmm. because you know some guys are traditionalists and they're just archery guys but a lot of guys will utilize the fact that they can gun hunt during the gun season it myself included and i know that once i kill you know my archery buck 
And if gun seasons roll around, just I don't know why. Maybe it's laziness. I don't know. But I don't pull the, the bow back out yeah. until yeah. it's like, oh, you know what? I'm going to go back out and bow hunt again in Illinois. So I need to shoot my bow today. It's like, what what do you do to get yourself back into that? You maybe never leave it, but get yourself back into that frame of mind of, of archery season once the gun season ends. Well, I don't generally gun hunt, so for me it's super easy. It's just like I got a little vacation here for a few weeks. But um, the first thing, like I super encourage people to do, going even if you killed a deer, not well, it's actually it's happened to me more times after I've killed a deer. I I treat my bow like horribly. I mean, I don't take care of it the way I should, and a lot of times things will get bumped. Um, so like right away before you go out uh, into that late season, you, I definitely would encourage people to shoot your bow. Even, even if you just check your 30 yard mark or whatever, to make sure that everything's hitting where it's, it should be hitting. If you're shooting fixed blade broadheads, make sure, um, you know, your, your blade, your, your, uh, your, your arrows are still flying straight towards the target. There's a ton of reasons for that, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, make sure like, just make sure your gear, gears all dialed in, your arrows are flying true. Um, and, that, that would be the biggest thing. And then there are some other considerations that happen in late season that I think people forget about. And like one of those is almost all of us are shooting some type of a drop away arrow rest right now. And uh, I experienced it a lot earlier because every year now I'm hunting in Montana again into that first and second week of October and I'm experiencing super cold conditions. And when, when your gear gets wet and it gets cold, it performs much differently, but especially with a drop away arrow rest. And there are, I, I honestly, I'm not super happy with any of the, the arrow rests out there. I've had almost everyone fail me in one way or another, but you have to make certain that if you're hunting in the rain or you're bringing your gear in and out of the cold, it, it's kind of like a muzzleloader deal. Like there's condensation that happens. Mm -hmm. And if that happens with those drop away rests or you have snow and ice build up on your rest, that that's a recipe for a complete disaster, even at 20 yards. So, I mean, I guess to nail one thing, I would, I would really caution the guys out there who are shooting those types of arrow rests. Um, to make sure that your gear is dialed in and it's shooting well in this cold, these cold, wet conditions, because um, that's what most of us face anyhow here in the Midwest in yeah. the late season. On top of that, I think on the on the drop away, everything in the late season is louder. So yes. you know everything's yeah. quiet. You're unless it's windy. You know everything seems to be super quiet and. and the arrows you draw back, you know, hitting your rest. I mean, you know, if you don't have some sort of you like know, felt or something felt or like whatever, mm -hmm. you know, mohair, whatever it is on it, it's going to be super loud, like amplified mm -hmm. loud. So, you know, if you got a bunch of deer out in front of you in a field and, you know, cut cornfield, you're going to have, you might have 20 deer in front of you, 10 deer. You got a lot more ears, eyes, nose. <laughs> you got to really pay yeah. attention to that stuff. So I know in the off season, like I kept, I was in my uh, local archery shop, Mike's bait and tackle, and I was pulling back and I kept hearing a noise. Well, before I went in there with it, I kept hearing a noise. So I brought it in and we, you know, we put some felt on a certain area of it and then it's like, all right, draw back again. That isn't it. We keep, hmm. you know, we kept putting it on until yeah. we found the spot that was making the noise and it was actually behind the drop away rest. And so we, we got yeah. it all figured out, but th those kind of things get amplified in the late yeah. season. So you might want to watch out for that. Well, and that, that's a question that one of our deer casters Rob had was that, uh, do, does your bow, does its performance change via the cold weather? It's something I've wondered about, you know, because things contract at cold like temperatures. Per second. And all yeah, that. I mean, yeah. Do, do, does it change the um, the the makeup of the limbs or the string? Do they stretch? Do they do they tighten up to where your your trajectory might be different? It's it would it's so minuscule that from a boning perspective, I don't think it's it's a concern. But what is a concern is 
the materials that are built around those drop away rests. Um, yeah, if they get cold, stiff, frozen, um, that, that rest is going to drop at a different rate. And when it comes down at a different rate, that means if, depending on how you have your bow set up, it, um, if you've got it set up to where it's on the edge of that arrow riding just a little bit too long or, or not long enough on that arrow rest, it can have a drastic effect on um, your ups and downs for sure. And if you're shooting fixed blade heads, kind of what I was saying earlier is if, if something's not functioning the way it should be or the way it was set up properly by the bow tech or whoever helps set you up your bow, um, that you could have some planing issues with broadheads too. So it's, it's hyper critical, I think, for, for people to go out and, and check their own setup because every setup is going to be different depending on how it was set up according to that timing. And those freezing cold, and especially if you're getting in wet conditions or you're taking your bow just in and out of the truck and it's getting hot and cold, you know, it, it's going to change the drop rate of that arrow rest. I mean, drop I shoot a drop away arrow rest, so I'm not definitely not dogging them. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, boy, you just you really got to know your bow inside and out in the late season more so than any other time. And the other thing a guy needs to think about or a guy needs to think about, too, is your anchor point. When you start putting on a bunch of clothes, um, depending on whether you're shooting handheld release or, or a wrist rocket or wrist strap type release, you're probably not going to have a, a, a consistent feeling anchor point at all, at least in the conditions I'm normally hunting in. Um, so you really have to make sure that your peeps align with your housing mm-hmm. on your on your scope and um, make sure that you're diligent about your shot process. So I, that's just – those are the biggest things that I see people make mistakes with in the late season. Yeah, if you if you're wearing a face mask or something and, and you know, neck gaiter or whatever, like those things make a pretty big difference. You know, so I always tend to, when I draw back or right before I draw back, pull it down mm-hmm. to draw back just yep. so I don't have anything obstructing, you know, that, that anchor point for me. So a lot. the other thing to think about is, you know, big heavy jacket, the zipper mm-hmm. on that jacket. That, that seems to be, you know, if you could catch, you know, the, the flap or whatever. There's a collar, the collar in the way. Yeah, mm-hmm. the collar on once you release the arrow. Those kind of things really can screw you up bad. So you gotta, you just got to really pay attention and be ultra yeah. aware where your cams are at. If you're in a ground blind or a box blind or whatever, late season, a lot of people mm-hmm. tend to do that if they can. And so, you know, your clearance, you know, clearance of your arrow above the, the window, you know, the opening if you're in a blind. So those types of things are a big Big, big deal, and you got to yeah. really watch out for them. Yeah, same thing with wearing gloves. It changes the way that you that you grip the bow. It change if if I shoot a handheld release, and that changes yeah. kind of the the distance between my hand and the bowstring just slightly. And so I, you know, whenever I get into the stand, I try to draw a few times just to make sure that I'm I'm lined up and and I can get to my anchor point because it yeah. feels different with gloves on. For sure, Th- yeah. and the, the later the season, the thicker the gloves, the worse it gets. That's right. That's right. Well, then and that kind of leads us into Justin's question he posted on DeerCast, and he's wanting to know how do you handle layering in order to because i mean you could be like like randy on the christmas story that's a callback to earlier in the show you can be like randy and not be able to put your arms down if you if you dress warm but not be able to shoot so it's like pointless so how, how do you do how do you balance that so for me i i wear um, like the first light merino base layers and then my cold weather gear is uh, the really nasty gear. Is all my I, I wear sickest stuff on the outside of it, so I'm I'm able to wear less clothing. But um, the the one thing I found about any of the merino wool, like the first light stuff, doesn't seem to. There's way less odor um, that accumulates in that clothing for some reason versus synthetics or partial synthetics. So I usually go with that, um, like a first light base layer or merino, and then 
my my Sika gear is my outer gear that I wear, um, and there's a ton of different models there. So I, and I'm not going to go down that road with a, a whole other podcast. But sure. um, one there's one item that I have that totally is a major game changer for me. Um, and there may be some other companies I think that are out there making this, but there's a company called Gerbing that makes motorcycle um, insulate and it, like heated vests. Hmm. And it, I have a heated vest, and it has this little battery on there. I should have brought it, um, but a little like a a really small, it's a little bigger than a nine volt battery mm-hmm. and they're interchangeable with different parts of their gear that they have. But that vest, I turn that thing on, there's four different levels on it. And if I turn it on four, I can almost be sweating with just a, uh, you know, a, a mid-weight jacket on the outside and, and a, a decent insulation base layer on underneath it. So really? that's, I mean, they're kind of pricey. They're like, a, I want to say they're close to 200 bucks or something like that. Um, but man, they're, those things are unbelievable. Boy, I mean, uh, <laughs> when you're in the stand and it's miserable out, you'll you'll pay any price well, to be comfortable. I, I got this deal that a, a guy reached out to me last year <clears throat> about, I don't know, probably in, in middle of the fall. And he has a company called, and he's not a sponsor or anything like that. It was a friend of a friend trying to get a company mm-hmm. up and running. It's called Under Warmer. And okay. it's basically hand warmers, hot hands for your chest and back area you put this little vest on uh it's uh, disposable so once you open the bag it activates it and you put it on and it it heats Hmm. you you know your kidneys and all the important areas it heats you like you were saying like you'll be sweating in this thing like i used it last year when we uh we went out and hunted the new year's day and it was like you know six below or whatever mm-hmm. it was and and it was hot literally hot in wow. this thing i was like oh my god i gotta get it off <laughs> burning <a> me <laughs> but it's a i mean there's a to your point rod there's a lot of cool products out there that mm-hmm. can help you get through the late season and not necessarily wear a ton of of layers i yeah. mean nomad their late season stuff is ridiculously warm they're done series and i know this year they got the cottonwood series out it's crazy how warm that stuff is sure. so um you know i think back to the old days and we you know the layer that we wore or you, you know it was thick and bulky and you really don't you really don't have to do that anymore if you can afford to go buy you know one good outer outer layer right right yeah and and, and the merino base base layer is great merino is antimicrobial so it does cut down on the stink not all of it but it does cut down on some it wicks moisture it's it's good stuff you're going to pay a little bit for it but it's it's worth it yeah so and I think if, if guys uh, and gals the big thing is their moisture management when they're going out to that stand Take your, take your outer layer off. I mean, if you're cold, walk into it. I know it's we're not hunting elk in Montana walking hours, but, man, just, you know, it's a 20-minute walk. If you get to that, you'll warm up quick. But if you get to your stand and you're cold when you get to your stand or you've sweated either one, it's almost impossible to get warm again. And it's um, I think a lot of people make that mistake. I know they make it a lot out west, and I see them do it all the time. At night, they go to bed cold mm. um, instead of doing some push-ups or something to, to get warm because all that uh, – I mean, other than the heated vest, whatever kind of gear you're wearing on the outside it isn't going to warm you up. It's just going to maintain whatever body heat you already have. Right. So you've got to keep that balance between, you know, when you're walking your stand, don't be sweating going in there because if you do, one, you've got bacterial odor starting to develop quickly. And then the other thing that you've got is you've got that moisture problem. And, I mean, the merino wool helps disperse that in synthetics, but you're not going to get rid of it, and you're not going to get that bone, kill, that, that bone chilling cold out of you once you get it in you, I don't think. 
so much of what you do in the stand late season is thermoregulation, and and it and, and you you hit the nail on the head, Rod. Once you get cold, it's almost impossible to get warm. So you have to manage your temperature, and and it starts with the extremities. Because once your hands get cold, it's really hard to get them back warmed up again. But all that blood kind of starts to shunt to the core of your body, leaving your extremities. And we know how you need dexterity when you're going to knock an arrow, or when you you know change your if you have a a single pin sight, moving the the pin on the sight. So there's a lot of stuff you need to do with your hands. So you need to keep your hands warm because as your hands and feet go, so do the rest of your body. You know, like your time is limited once your hands and feet start getting cold. It's going downhill. One of the other things that you can do is make sure you bring some high calorie snacks with you to the stand because now we're talking. You're, <laughs> now we got your attention, <laughs> and, and and it's okay. Like this time of year, I think you know if you're if you're health conscious, that that's great. More fat, more sugar, and some protein those kind of things we should do a whole podcast just on snacks and we'll (laughs) test them all let's do that let's do it let's end this one and get to it yes yeah so rod any other kind of parting cold weather archery bow hunting tips for folks the only um i would say the other big mistake that i've seen a lot um was not uh silencing your gear enough and i know you mentioned more about the felt but um i hockey tape everything um Hockey tape or gas tape, either one, it's the same basic stuff. You can buy them at almost any sporting goods store. Um, but I, I'll, my, I, everything I hunt for the most part is I'm hunting public land all almost entirely. Mm-hmm. And so I've got my setups on my back all the time. So I'm sliding in and sliding out with it all the time. But everything has to be super quiet. So anything metal um, and, and a lot of things that are plastic, I have wrapped in hockey tape. And that, that would be, I guess, probably the last big tip I could give anybody is make sure your gear is super quiet. I mean, the little tiny things you don't think about, like little buckles that touch metal on your stand mm-hmm. on your backpack, um, those are those are bad deals, man. Sound travels so much further when it's super, super cold, um, especially in the late season, it seems like. That's brilliant because I, I do a lot of hunting with my climber, and I'm always walking in, and there's one stupid buckle on that thing that clinks every step, and I'm just like, they heard you. Kind of, yeah, dog, I've been wondering why cussing. you're not seeing anything this year. I just I figured sound, it out. I sound like a one-man band. They walking. heard you coming. <laughs> it's un- yeah, the hockey tape idea is great. That's awesome. Thank you. Cool. Well, Rod, if folks want to find you or find out more about you, National Field Archery Association, how do they do that? They can go to the uh, the website is www.nfaausa.com. Um, and then any of my stuff, they can go find me, look up Rod at rodwhite.com and Instagram. I'm Olympic bow hunter and, uh, Facebook. I think it's uh, Rod white Olympic bow hunter. I think I took Olympic bow hunter on Facebook. So sorry about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Rod, he's one for- of those ones that you got to report. <laughs> yeah. He's a fraud. This is not the guy he says he is. Rod, thanks for joining us. Rod will be on the show with us next week also. So make sure you subscribe to the show and get more Rod white. If, if you if you aren't already subscribed to the 100% Wild podcast, it's easy. It's free. You can do it at all the places you would normally get podcasts, Google Play Store, iTunes, um, uh, Podbean, Stitcher, all those great all those great locations, and YouTube also. You can su- subscribe to the show and see us. Absolutely. If you're over on the Jury Outdoors YouTube channel, we got all kinds of new, fresh content every week. You know, new episodes of uh, Jury, Winchester and Jury's Natural Born right mm-hmm. now. And uh, we got a pretty cool giveaway that we're going to be 
talking about here starting about a month or so. So yeah, you're going to want to check it out. Of course, subscribe. You can always follow us on social media, Drury Outdoors. And if you haven't already, if you're living under a rock, if you're the only friend that's not cool, Go download the DeerCast app, please, so you have something to talk about with your friends. Right. Or you could be like me, who's not cool, and I have DeerCast. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's a couple of those guys. <laughs> if you want to leave us a question that we could answer on the show, just like Dennis did, it's easy. Go to DuryOutdoors.com slash podcast and click on the Send Voicemail tab and leave us a question with your name and location, and we will maybe answer it on the air. All right. I think that's it for today. Let's shut it down. Merry Christmas, everybody. And peace. We're adding new videos every week, so make sure to click that subscribe button and check out all of our amazing content. This episode of DOD TV was brought to you by Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's.